welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. We're here with Howard Klein for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Howard Klein is with RK Equity. He and his partner, Rodney Hooper, track the lithium and other EV battery mineral markets extremely closely. I'm always fascinated to learn more about what they have to say about what's happening, sort of get some, I feel like, inside scoop on critical topics to the EV industry that not many people follow or, or pay attention to. Of course, I'm Zachary Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. Thank you for listening. Howard, I guess to start off, it's been a while since we talked. I talked to Rodney a couple of months ago, but what, what would you say are some highlights, some new highlights in the global and U.S. Uh, EV battery mineral mining markets? Well, a lot's happened. I, actually, I don't remember the last time I was on, Zach, but uh, I have been looking back uh, every few weeks. I, I look back and, you know, since Battery Day uh, was September, you know, and then Biden was elected and then Georgia in January went full Democrat. You know, the tailwinds behind this, you know, the EV investment thematic has, has just gotten stronger and stronger. So all throughout this year, you've had the various power days, you know, from VW, Stellantis and Ford and, and others. So the momentum has kept going. I think we talked a bit about policy and the infrastructure bill. I thought that that was going to pass late August and September. It took, you know, a bit longer, but the first component of it was passed. So yet another tailwind to, you could see it in the stocks reflected, you know, in October, um, you know, rallying on the back of that. You've had big announcements. Uh, if I could just highlight recent big news, you know, Rivian obviously has gone public this week, raising $12 billion. They're now $120 billion market cap. I don't think they've delivered a vehicle. I listened to a, a Jim Cramer snippet from 10 or 12 years ago, which was just before the Tesla IPO. And he was saying, you know, it'll be a, a hot IPO, but to flip it. But I think they raised something like 200 or $250 million at a 1.5 billion market cap. At that point, they had delivered like 1,100 cars or something like that. So to just compare that to the quantum of capital that is being raised, $12 billion at 100, now it's 120 billion valuation is just, it's crazy. It's it definitely reflective of, like in the 20s, you had a boom in the auto sector and a whole bunch of companies listed, raised capital. Not a lot of them survived, obviously. So uh, I, I saw an interview yesterday with John Doerr on CNBC, and he was talking about this, not so much a bubble, but a boom. And in booms, you have winners and you have losers, but the, you know, the capital is allocated. And, and that's where we are, the tailwind it's not just in America. America has joined the global party. It's joined China and has joined 
uh, Europe, you know, Biden and Kerry were just at, you know, the, the COP26. And that was just another, you know, festival of sorts where everyone's you know, competing on how fast they can get to net zero. And, you know, the Department of Energy gave, you know, some presentations there. It's just full-throated endorsement for a climate, you know, agenda and a decarbonization agenda. Obviously, Are China we- wasn't there. <laughs> Russia wasn't there. There's still some, you know, complications in, in all of that. But just the, the trajectory behind this is very strong from a government policy point of view, and the capital markets are are following that. And but then uh, China a- and China and the U.S. made a an agreement a couple of days ago after that. So they sort of they worked out their own kind of. Uh, I mean, of course, yeah. it's, it's an agreement. It's a, it's vague, you know. But I think I think the key point, you know, which it's very tempting to get caught up in the Rivian IPO compared to the Tesla IPO because it's mind-boggling. It's also mind-boggling the, the value Tesla is at. But I think the key point you're highlighting is everyone sees where the market is heading. So it's sort of like, you know, everyone sees 2030 auto market is electric. And so there's kind of a, everybody wants to be on the bandwagon of the winners as quickly as possible maybe even a little over enthusiastic, but I don't, I don't know, but, or, or it's just, you know, everybody sees where it's going and, and people are moving now instead of too late. There's a a dichotomy. uh, Sorry to to interrupt. I mean, like I mentioned Rivian and that valuation. So the, 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 the capital markets providing them with $12 billion to implement their plans, you know, then Ford and SK, announced, you know, an equally, you know, ambitious, uh, I don't know, $11.4 billion in, in Tennessee and Kentucky, new new plants. Ford stock has risen a little bit, but the market's yeah. not, you know, uh, properly, That's funny. Uh, you know, r- like the cost of capital to Ford is much, much higher, you know, than Rivian, but legacy and new auto and Lucid's doing, you know, extremely well in the markets as well. Redwood, J.B. Straubel, Elon Musk's, you know, partner, made a major announcement that, you know, his recycling business, he's now going to get into the midstream of the supply chain, which is in cathodes in particular, that's very significant. He's able to raise lots of money privately, you know, eventually he'll go public, but money is being thrown at other aspects of the supply chain. And our focus is all the way kind of upstream on the minerals and, and the chemicals. Cathodes is the midstream, batteries and EVs is where most of the focus has been, but it's very telling that uh, Redwood is focused on the cathodes because if you build cathode plants you know, in America, then you can have the localized supply chain all contained within America or North America by you know having the raw materials, you know, certainly Just, from lithium perspective, but also you know nickel and graphite and, and a few other commodities. So, so as an overview for all of us less informed are there any other cathode production facilities in the u.s there's a small and and a few i think basf has one i forget exactly where they are but they're they're small tesla announced during battery day that in addition to getting into the lithium hydroxide business they're getting into the cathode business and a number of battery companies are other battery companies like lg and sk do make some of their own cathode but it's very small in the U.S., right? So that, that's the big thing when Elon Musk kind of talks about the current supply chains whacked because, you know, you're shipping things all over the world. 
even if you were producing lithium, you know, today in the United States, you'd have to ship it largely to Asia, you know, only to bring it back, you know, to put into batteries and cars here. So, so the uh, Jamie I mean, Straubel's have... vision is, you know, Jamie Straubel basically said his plan is to have 100 gigawatt hours, I think it was, of cathode by 2025 in America and 500 gigawatt hours by 2030. And then he said that there needs to be four, at least four companies of equal ambition, you know, to meet this need. So we all talk about EVs are going to be whatever percent penetration by 2030. He recognizes that, you know, in the cathode space, you need similar ambition and scale and dollars thrown at it because the current cathode producers are, are, are too small, moving too slow. And there was an example of that common is that Johnson Matthey, which had plans and invested $340 million to build cathode in Europe. Uh, Johnson Matthey is a UK company. We're planning to build, uh, do have a plant in Poland, decided to exit the cathode business. And hmm. basically they said, their capital intensity is too high. They can't move fast enough. They're too small. This game, it's becoming more commoditized. So, so, so there's the other, there's yeah. SK Innovation in Georgia. There's LG Kamen up in the Midwest. Are these major, huge battery, battery cell producers? Are they, is there a possibility that they start producing high volumes of cathodes in the US or, or that's really not worth what they would get into or? I think the answer is yes. It's not exactly clear. I'm not 100% sure because I haven't, I don't know that they've disclosed that, but I do know that SK and LG are making their own cathode selectively in other places. There are a lot of Chinese cathode makers. There's Umicore and BASF as two European cathode makers, but they're not huge. So the answer is, and I mean, I, SK I, 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 I think so, but not entirely i think they still will be outsourcing it's just similar to tesla saying just because we're entering lithium hydroxide business doesn't mean that we won't be buying hydroxide just because we're entering the battery business right. doesn't mean we won't be buying batteries there it's going to be a mix of both right right but they are i mean those are two south korean companies and they have a you know they have a kind of it's always a tricky relationship with with china so you know, China's got its big battery companies, uh, most notably CATL, Cattle, and I'm sure to some extent, SK Innovation, LG Chem would like a little bit more control and independence over there, you know, where they, where they don't rely too much on what China decides to do and they're, and they're part of the supply chain on that. Definitely, I don't think SK and LG Chem want to be buying exclusively cathode you know, or, you know, battery raw materials from, from China. And there is, there's definitely a, uh, I know you're, 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 LFP is currently like a, a Chinese technology and there's definitely the Koreans and Japanese uh, developing their high nickel. There's very much a, a competition country-wise, you know, on, on what is the technology that are, are going to be deployed. This episode of Clean Tech Talk is sponsored by Flow, the maker of the Flow Home X5. The Flow Home X5 is an industry-leading home EV charging solution that features a stylish and durable aluminum casing and allows you to schedule, monitor, and optimize your charging via the Flow mobile app. 
Flow offers 24-7 customer support to help with installation and troubleshooting. To learn more about the Flow Home, please visit store.flow.com. That's store.flo.com. So let's get into, unless there's more to say about news on U.S. mineral mining or policies. If there's not, then maybe we could jump to that issue of LFP. So, you know, we actually had a writer, Max Holland, right before Battery Day, who presented the idea that Battery Day would actually be about Tesla using a lot more LFP. That that was sort of what all the, a lot in the industry hinted. And it was a long article about why that would be, make sense. And Elon responded that that it's not actually what Battery Day is about, but that's a very good point. (laughs) There were very good points. And now a year later, we're seeing much more of a shift of Tesla saying we're going to use LFP in the US for standard range models not for the more high performance models. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about a, a few things on that? So there's, there's some talk about, a, about expiring patents or patent issue that has enabled that more in the, in the U S that sort of blocked it. I don't know if you want to get into that at all. There's the issue of nickel supply, which you've talked a lot about and, you know, sort of prepared us for this moment. And there's, you know, just matters of energy density and cost and, and, and all that aside from even the, the nickel supply issue. So maybe you could just talk about, about any of those topics that interest you. I mean, guess all three are relevant, right? Elon Musk said, mine more nickel. He's paranoid and there's not enough nickel. So therefore, uh, use nickel for applications that need it, right? So he's late on the cyber truck. He's late, you know, on the semi, you know, those are high nickel, but the uh, shortages are real. He's talked about supply chain issues. So I, I do believe that pursuit of LFP is to a reasonable degree due to switching, you know, the um, and availability of, uh, of resources and cost. But secondly, not all applications need, you know, super high density. So, you know, scarcity and, and, and choice, you know, it, it makes sense. Those, a lot of people who drive around the city, like, like the range anxiety, you know, consideration in many other countries is less. So on a standard range, on a cheaper model, if you're a city dweller and you don't travel, you know, long distances a lot, then you clearly can make a cheaper car, and 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 that will that'll sell and that'll work. To your point on the patents, I'm not an expert on this at all, but I do understand, yes, that certain LFP patents will be expiring. So others you know, can copy this Chinese technology in time. Uh, I do have some consideration, like batteries are heavy and to be importing CATL batteries from China, you know, to be assembled in Europe or the United States, you know, kind of goes against the concentrated supply chain that Elon has been espousing. And the second thing is exporting a lot of high value added, you know, uh, cars and batteries. I mean, in, in Tesla's case, he's exporting whole cars from China with LFP batteries to Europe. That's going to be a problem for Europe, right? You know, the, the Volkswagen's CEO is under fire by you know, this, the workers unions in Volkswagen, because they're fearful that his unbelievable ambitions for EVs is going to result in lost jobs. So I, it, there's going to be a, from a sustainability point of view and a jobs point of view, 
I think it's going to be problematic to be exporting either a ton of batteries out of China or a ton of cars out of China into European and American markets. So from a sustainability and a, you know, and a jobs point of view, will we start seeing when these things go off patent, other battery companies, you know, copying and making LFP batteries in America or Europe, or will CATL be allowed to build, they're allowed to build in Europe, but Will they be welcomed into the United States? We shall see. So we've never been, you know, at all against you know, LFP batteries. I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of you know, positive attributes, you know, to them, and and I think they they can and, and will be used for the U.S. market. Though we think the U.S. market, we just have a big country. People like big cars. Range anxiety is very real. Distances are are long, uh, even if you only go one or two times a year on a long trip, it's just psychologically, you know, we're, we're, we're a big truck SUV culture. If you look at the, the US market's gonna be mostly high nickel, uh, in my opinion, for the EV market. LFP has applications in non-EV, you know, as well. So it's all great from a mass market point of view, Elon, and Tesla, you know, for the the standard range, will continue with that. All of those batteries, LFP and high nickel, they all require lithium. The LFP obviously doesn't require nickel or or cobalt. I don't think it punctures the nickel thesis in at all in a in a meaningful way, and it certainly doesn't puncture the lithium thesis. So, just I guess, sort of to go back between these two questions. So are there any big new contracts or big uh, business deals from the past six months or six to 10 months that you feel ha- have sort of changed this, changed a little bit the, the trends and the trajectory, trajectory of the lithium or nickel markets? Or has it just been sort of what it was last time we talked and price crunches as a result? Or, and I might be Presuming a little too much at the end. Uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> the there, 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 there's there, there's been a very large volume of financing and M and A deals happening in the lithium market in particular, but also in the nickel market. So there's currently a a bidding war between BHP and Andrew Forrest, a billionaire in Australia's Wailu for a small nickel company called Norant in Canada. Talon Metals, a client of ours, recently one of their investors sold down, you know, half of their stake to a new private equity group, Pallinghurst. I think BHP signed a long-term deal with Tesla, and I and I believe Tesla was also involved in Goro and and Pop. Is it um, New Caledonia? You know, so there was some there. There's been nickel movement in lithium. The major news in the lithium markets from an M&A point of view in the most recent uh, times past like six or eight weeks has been China has been writing checks. Chinese companies have been writing checks in Argentina as well as in, in Africa for mines, right? Security of supply, you know, advanced projects. So as the lithium price, lithium price has gone up three, four times. And you've gone from a modestly oversupplied market, you know, this time last year to a market that's perceived to be, that is short now and is perceived to be short 
indefinitely for at least like the next three, five, or even longer years. So there are a number of companies that were relatively advanced in, you know, they've reached definitive feasibility study level. And there was a question, okay, they, they now need to raise their full financing. Some of those companies have chosen to sell because their stock prices have gone up and they've actually attracted bids at attractive prices. So one example, or the most prominent example is, the, the other thing is that these are companies that are outside of the lithium sector that are getting into the lithium sector. So Zijin Mining, which is a copper, gold, and zinc producer in China, is 24% state-owned, announced that they're acquiring neolithium for 770 million US dollars. Neolithium is a company that, you know, spent maybe 50, 75 million dollars over the last few years drilling holes, advancing studies, you know, bringing a project to a definitive feasibility study level and getting it permitted. And now Zijin is saying, thank you very much. I'll take it for 770 million and then I'll spend the next four or 500 million to build it and they're going to enter the business. So they see this is an important area. So that has actually, Argentina has had a lot of political problems over the last few years. Argentine assets were relatively depressed valuation rise to others. And I've always seen it as almost exclusively, you know, the domain of, you know, where China would play. And but here we have that I'm right about that. China is mostly playing, but they're stepping up and writing big checks, which are rewarding, you know, the Canadians and other shareholders, you know, in these stocks. I think to some degree, the LFP argument has also helped catalyze this because LFP requires lithium carbonate, whereas high nickel requires lithium hydroxide. So carbonate brines in South America are advantaged from a cost perspective in making lithium carbonate and to the extent that LFP is more a Chinese dynamic and LFP has a big tailwind. So China's buying low cost carbonate by going into Argentina. There are also, I mean, Ganfeng and CATL have made investments in Africa for hard rock spodumene you know, projects. One is in the DRC, one is in, is in Mali. So you're seeing a lot of M&A activity. You're also seeing it's not just China. Sabanya Stillwater, a South African platinum group metals producer, agreed to joint venture with Ioneer in Nevada, which is a boron lithium deposit. They're going to invest, I think it's $480 million. They put an initial $70 million in, and when and if Ioneer gets permitted, they'll put the rest in. So you're seeing that this is a collection of, of deals that you know have, have transpired, but advanced assets. I, I keep track of all of these lithium companies on my scoreboard. You know, Canada has seen a lot of activity. There, you know, there's been some MA. Piedmont Lithium has invested in Canada, a group called Siona, in a company called Siona, and then Siona you know, made an investment in, in an acquisition of North American lithium as well as Moblon, you know, so there, there's just the capital markets, the market caps of the lithium companies have grown, you know, from, I don't know, 25 to $30 billion to, 
you know, $120 billion. So a fourfold increase across all of the companies that I look like. I was joking. I missed, I've never invested in Tesla directly. When I, when it was 50 billion, I thought it was expensive and it went to a trillion. But instead, my portfolio is filled with 50 million companies, you know, that have become a billion. So that, like you can make money that way too. And, and that's w- what's been happening with a lot of these companies that we've been talking to you about for the, the past two years. Just don't invest in oil, oil and gas, right? Not, not investment I, advice. No, no advice here. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I it's, it, it's funny in the depths of the, of the pandemic when everything was collapsing, I, I did rejigger my whole portfolio and I almost bought Exxon. Well, um, it, it has done, it has risen. It's since done so well. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, I the pandemic I was a good time to have some free cash, I guess. Well, a couple of questions. One, um, so you mentioned lithium prices have gone up about three to four times in the past year. What do you, do you have any expectation? Can you talk a little bit about what you expect in the next year or two with that? Do you think they're going to keep going up? as the crunch gets greater or do you think the level off or drop or? It's a very hard question to answer because I think at current, at current prices, let's say 25 to 30,000 lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. And then the spodumene precursor is, you know, the 2000, you know, 1500 to 2000, those prices are, enough to incentivize new supply, right? So if you're, if you have a project and you think prices are going to stay at that level for a a meaningful period of time, you'll be doing everything you can to advance your project and capital will be available for you to do that. So one would argue the price doesn't necessarily have to go higher than that in order to incentivize the supply but the price can very well go higher than it could go to 30, it could go to $40,000, depending on the desperation of the immediate buyers and, and their needs. A lot of lithium is contracted long-term. So Tesla buys from Albemarle, you know, on not exclusively, you know, but, but a, a meaningful portion of Tesla's lithium supply is pegged to some contracts and those contracts have, uh, you know, enable the lithium producers to ratchet up the price over time. But it's, it's not like when you see the headline spot market numbers, Tesla's not paying $25,000, because a lot of the market is contracted. Nevertheless, the spot market is an indicator of where things are, or where they're going and where next year or the year after the year after that prices will be for those long-term contracts. So I don't have a direct answer for you. I, I, we're not a price forecaster. Uh, we do track everything that goes on. Rodney, we have a very good sense of supply and demand and what projects are there, but groups like Benchmark Minerals and Simon Moores has been out there publicly talking about you know, the potential for $40,000, you know, carbonate or hydroxide. So that would be, you know, another $10,000 on top of where prices are today. I don't see prices coming down sharply for any real reason. There's just not, you had a, a long period of time, a reasonable period of time where investment was slowed. And now you've had a very aggressive demand increase and, and the demand is not abating. So, yeah, I think just, we're... uh, as one example, we had we just published this week 
24% of new vehicle sales in the Netherlands this month, last month were fully electric BEVs. So, you know, we've seen that rise in Europe. That's just one, one country's similar trends around. And there's no sign that it's dropping. It sort of keeps climbing. And then, like you said, the U.S. is sort of, you know, it's sort of looking like it wants to play catch up finally. China's growth keeps going. So it's hard to see uh, demand dropping. But yeah, I, I didn't want to put you in a pickle. I almost, I, you know, I know it's forecasting prices is, is risky business and uh, difficult. I just, you know, I know you know a lot about it. So I was curious what your take was. And on what you mentioned, some of the stuff you mentioned there, one thing, you know, we saw Tesla made a deal with Piedmont, Piedmont Lithium. And I'm always, it's always been an interesting one for me because it, it is a U.S., company it, they have you know potentially a lot of resource in north carolina and and i always saw it as sort of tesla testing the water seeing what they can get out of north america from a, this this small company i'm curious what your i know you work you work with them so uh, i'm curious what your insight is on what's been happening there is because they haven't really heard anything since that deal which i think was over a year ago now or something or it was a while back it was it, it was over a year ago. You haven't heard anything from Tesla about their hydroxide plans. I haven't heard anything on that. There was an announcement actually by Piedmont that said, you know, both Piedmont and Tesla agreed to adjust the timeline of, you know, deliveries. And, you know, so I, I think Tesla pandemic and, and other factors. Elon Musk doesn't always meet his deadlines. So I think like the hydroxide deadline is unlikely to be met. And Piedmont also had, you know, some things that impeded or are impeding their timeline by whatever, three or six months. The only thing else I heard out of Tesla on the lithium front was that they they filed for some patents, you know, on, on the salty clay idea, but not a great deal of, of detail on that. Anyone, my friend uh, Jordan Gisi, yeah, the limiting factor has done deep dives, you know, into that. I'd, I'd recommend anybody if they're curious. But I think that's long dated, right? That's very far in the future that a source of supply of lithium is going to come from Nevada clay under this new technology. But there hasn't been a lot of further discussion from Tesla you know, about that agreement. The only other comments have just been, we talked about, you know, he, he has talked a fair bit about LFP, you know, being iron-based and, you know, NCA being nickel-based. And he continues to say that lithium's not a worry. I think he's, you know, because it's abundant, you know, lithium is abundant. He's right. But lithium Lithium may not be a worry for Tesla because they have locked in long-term agreements, but lithium is a worry across the sector. Um, yeah, you could say he's got an issue with optimism, but he has also become the richest man in the world. So optimism might be a good trait. <laughs> but yeah, there's the, it definitely creates these kind of issues. I think we've seen many times in many different topics. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.
you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.